right. Good morning. So we're in this last uh, part of the series on the idols in our lives. And so we've looked at different things about distraction and just idols in general. And I was beginning to pray about what would be the last idol that we're going to look at uh, before we get into our Easter uh, series. And as I was praying about it, um, it kind of came to me like a slap in the face from um, Will Smith. <laughs> too, too early? Too early? Too early? I was Chris Rock. I was standing there praying. Sorry. But it came to me that <laughs> technology... <laughs> Technology could really be an idol, right? Like our phones, like this is so much of our lives now, right? Like in our pocket, um, social media, those sort of things. So I kind of clumped technology into one, right? That that could be an idol in our lives. And you may be wondering, like, what's he going to tell me? Like, should use technology? That's not, we're actually going to end up going somewhere probably different than what you Expect, But I remember getting my first cell phone. It was a used cell phone from a guy uh, that I worked with. I was in college, and he was selling his used Motorola flip phone. Now, this is the one where you still got to pull the antenna out. Like, little plastic antenna, you pull it out. This was in 2001. Man, I thought I was something, like, when I got this cell phone. Like, this was the coolest thing in the whole world. I was 22 years old. never had a cell phone before that. No kidding, I pulled up to the parking lot in college, and I had my cell phone for the first time. I, I get out of my truck, I get halfway to class, and I realize I don't have my cell phone. Now, like, this is the first day I've had a cell phone. So what do you think that I did? Do you think that I went to class, or do you think I turned around and went and got my phone? I went and got my phone. What if somebody called, right? I've got 22 years of my life, never having a cell phone. And the first day, I was like, I gotta go get my phone, in case somebody calls, which is silly. But you think about, like, technology, the iPhone has been out for 15 years. Can you believe that? 15 years. Now, hold me to that. Somewhere around there, 15 years. But I want to say that technology is not inherently bad. It's not inherently bad, technology. It improves our lives in a, a lot of things. And I'm not here to tell you how much or how little to use technology because that's different for each and every single person that's here but what i do want to look at is that in all things we can indulge and get distracted we can get off course and we can create things in the image of god that keep us from god and so what i would like to do is that for you to know that it's easy for all of us to use technology or anything really to seek our own glory but that self-glory never fulfills self-glory never fulfills so is technology a new problem that we're facing or is it an old problem and how do we know if technology is an idol so those are some of the things that I want to look at. And I believe we can find that all the way back in the book of Genesis. So I'm going to turn all the way back 
to Genesis chapter 6. In the beginning, of course, in Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates mankind and, and all of the creatures. And Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit. They do what God tells them not to do. And, of course, sin enters into the world. We turn the page in Genesis into the next chapter, and we're introduced uh, to a guy that's a descendant of Adam, and his name is Noah. And you may have heard of Noah's ark before. So Noah comes onto the scene, and, and, and all of these generations that are there, and all of a sudden, God is not very happy with mankind. Even so much that in chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, And the reason that it grieved him is because they were not righteous. They were not following the Lord. They were not following the commandments of God that God had given. And it grieved him. And it says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creepy things and birds of heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. That's pretty harsh for God to say, I, I regret that I made man. I'm just going to blot him out. But one of the best words in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the word but. But, not B-U-T-T. Get your heads out of the gutter. B-U-T, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah, all mankind had grown evil Every thought from their hearts were evil, but God found favor with one person. One person. His name was Noah. And in verse 9 it says, Noah was a righteous man, blessed in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. And again, you may have remembered the stories of the flood that Noah built the ark and put all the animals and his, his sons and his sons' wives and his wife, and they're on the ark. And after the flood, in verse 9, or chapter 9, verse 1, then Noah built an ark, oh no, sorry, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, and this is after the floods recited, receded, and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go, be fruitful, verse 7, Be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Go and multiply is what God tells them to do. And in verse 11, God tells them, I establish my new covenant, this covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off from my waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, does anyone know what the sign is that we still see today to know that God will never flood the earth again? The rainbow, that's right. Down in verse 13, I have set my bow in the clouds, and the cloud is that shall be a sign of the covenant that I made 
to you. This new covenant that God gave, that it shall never flood again. Again, in, in verse 19, there, three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So the descendants of Noah started off with his sons and his sons' daughters, and now it's more, and now they're dispersed around the earth as they did what God had told them to do. But, not in a good light, but in a bad light, as sinful and broken as we are, things tend to go awry when you are dealing with people that God has found out. In chapter 11, there is the story of the Tower of Babel. Anyone heard of the Tower of Babel before? A few people? Tower of, of Babel. So all, all was well with God and with mankind. But as we know, it doesn't take long for sinners like you and I to mess things up. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he said that there is nothing new under the sun. Solomon was the wisest person, the son of David, King David. He was the wisest person to ever live on the face of the earth. He said there is nothing new. Anything that you encounter today, there is nothing new. Nothing new under the sun. You say, well, there's a new iPhone out. I'm getting ready for it. I'm going to go buy it. Well, he's not meaning that. He, he's meaning like the condition of the human heart or, or how people react or how we stray away from God or do all the things that we see in human nature and the things around us and humanity and the conditions of our heart. Like nothing has changed. It's, there's nothing new under the sun. So I'm going to go ahead and read this story in the Bible, the Tower of Babel. If you would follow along with me, Genesis 11, 1 through 9. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen. I say that word every time I think how the British say vitamins, vitamins. I don't know, I said bitumen. And bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Again, right? And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. And when I read that story, I'm, 
I always think like, well, what's wrong with building a tower? Like, what's wrong with coming together, using technology to build a tower to show off like, the, the, you know, how smart we are and how wise with all of these things that God has given us. That was always my first reaction when I read this story. But what I want to look at is how God was looking at this. Verse 2, we see that they begin to migrate back together. And as a people, they migrated from east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And nothing is inherently wrong with moving, of course. But what was wrong here is that they were going against what God told them to do. God says, hey, go to the ends of the earth and multiply. Multiply. But here we see they say, hey, let's come together. Let's migrate back together to this nice, wonderful place that's come to known as Babylon. Let's come together there and let's use what we have together to do something that's counter to what God had told them to do. Verse 3 through 4 and they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stones and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. And do you see how many times they said, Let us, let we, let us make a name for ourselves in that? Over and over they say, Let us, let we, let's do this together. Let's make a name for ourselves and I ask, where in this is God? Where once do they mention God? They wanted their own security and they wanted their own praise. Even to a point, and I know I'm mispronouncing this, B-I-T-U-M-E-N, it's what that really is, it's asphalt, right? My daddy worked his whole life in asphalt, and my brother does as well. Uh, so I know a lot about asphalt. And they used the asphalt. They built bricks. You see it here in the verse. And then they used asphalt for mortar. Bricks and mortar are waterproof. It's using the most advanced technology that they had of the day to find security in what they were building. What if God was to flood us again? I've got to build something tall and sturdy and heavy and waterproof. Not trusting on the promises that God had given them. That I will never flood the earth again. To go and to multiply. I know what's best for you. Verse 4 we see it says, They said, Come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And it says at the end of that, Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Where did they get that from? Well, God did that in the first place in their generations before. So clearly, they understood and remembered God's commandments to go and to multiply. But they thought, hey, we can have it. We can have our cake and eat it too. The word bab babble is all about human independence and self-sufficiency from God. Get this. I read this uh, in a commentary. It says, They thought their social unity 
and technology gave them confidence in their own abilities. Sounds very familiar today. Nothing new under the sun. They thought their social unity and technology gave them confidence in their own abilities. Verse 5 through 9. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And there's actually an old philosopher who wrote about seeing this tower. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they process, propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come let us down, come, let us, like the Holy Spirit, the, the Trinity, right? Let us come down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, the name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from the Lord and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth again. What this tells me is that God will always accomplish his purpose. He says, go and multiply. Follow my commandments. God didn't want it that way. He just wanted them to love him and to follow his commandments. The second thing is that God will always fulfill his promises and his covenants. God's promises are true. His covenants are true. We can trust in those. We may get tired of waiting on God's promises, but his promises always come true. God, again here, could have just said, hey, I'm done with these human beings who won't love me or won't follow me, and he could have just wiped them off of the face of the earth. But he says, no, I've got another plan. I'm going to confuse them and mix up their language, and I'm going to disperse them over the earth again because I know what's best for them. In the Old Testament, Babel is Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, if you read about him and Daniel and the original Babylon. But Babylon is, in the Bible, is a symbol of human ambition to dethrone God and to make the earth its own. Whether that's an entity or a government or a country, in Revelation and the prophecy of end times, in Revelation 17 and 18, uh, that, whatever that may be, that country or whatever is characterized and is called Babylon. It's called Babylon. And it was characterized by human ambition to dethrone God. But I want to say that the Tower of Babylon wasn't the problem. It was a symptom, but it wasn't the problem. And just as technology isn't a problem, but if it is an idol, if you made it into your own image and you put it above God, then it's, a, it's not the problem, it's a symptom. It's a symptom of something bigger. That God has, has told us to do something and we have disobeyed. That we have sinned against the Holy God. And when we create something 
We create something and we make it into our God, into our own standards of how we want to live our lives, and that is an idol. And we may say that technology makes our lives better. It clearly makes us more self-sufficient, that's for sure. I can hop on my phone and do all kinds of things, right? Check my bank account, I can send emails, I can... There's all kinds of self-sufficiency type things that I can do. Again, not bad in and of itself. But if we are not walking with God, I wonder if our lives truly are better, even with technology. So why did God disperse the people of Babel? Because they disobeyed his commandments. Deuteronomy 5, we talk about the Ten Commandments for the second time in the Bible. First one is that you should love God. You should have no other gods. Second one is that you should not have idols. You should not create idols and worship those idols above the one true God. But it's interesting in that second commandment, God goes on to talk uh, a little bit more explicitly in Deuteronomy 5. And he talks about if you do this, it's not going to be good for you and for your generations. But if you do see me above all, you don't have idols, it's going to be good for you and generations to come. And at the end of that couple of sentences, he says, he boils it down to this. He said, because if you have idols in your life, you're not loving me and you're not following my commandments same thing with the people of Babel he's saying you, you didn't love me and you didn't follow my commandments it's like having a child where you say hey go, go do this like I love you I know what's best for you and they don't do it So God found favor with Noah. Noah walked with God. He, he loved God and he followed God's commandments. Later, we find a new character in the Bible called Abraham after Noah. And Abraham, God tells him to go. He says, go to a new land that I will show you. And make a nation. Go and multiply. Just as he told Noah and his descendants. Go and to multiply. Jesus with you and I in Matthew chapter 28. He says go right before he ascended into heaven. He says go and to multiply. Christians, followers of Jesus. This is my commandment to you. This is my new covenant in my blood or what we're about to partake in a little bit. He says, go and multiply. You say, he wants me to move to overseas and have babies? No, he's wanting you to go wherever he calls you to do and to make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A disciple is someone that follows Jesus, right? We just read all about this. God, he just wants us to walk with him. 
just to walk with him, just to spend time with him. And Jesus says, hey, if you're my follower, go tell people about the good news and the hope that you have. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll follow my commandments. And at the end of that, he says, and behold, I'll be with you until the end of the days. So is your phone an idol? Well, I've got two questions to help us figure that out. Number one, is it keeping you from loving God? With all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. You want to summarize all the commandments that, that God has given us? Number one, love God. Follow His commandments. Number two, do you love others? Is something in your life, technology or anything else, keeping you from loving others? If it is, maybe it's an idol. How do you know? Do you go? Jesus tells us all to go. It doesn't have to be around the world. It can be just your neighbor. Say, hey, I made you this plate of cookies. I was thinking about you. I want you to know God loves you. That could be your go. So you're loving God and are you loving others? And I found this to be really interesting that loving God is, is walking with God. Loving others is going. Both of those are verbs. Both of those are verbs. They're actions. So the application for today, if technology is an idol in your life or anything else is keeping you from loving God and loving others, we're going to have a time of reflection. If God puts that on your heart, just confess it to God. You don't have to tell me. If you can, if you want, I'll pray for you. I've got my own stuff to confess, though. But just confess it to the Lord. Bring it to Him. He is quick and fast to forgive you. So how do I know? Are you like those in the Old Testament that found favor with God? How do you know? And I want to tell you a little secret. There is nothing new under the sun. Technology is not the issue. Our sinfulness is the issue. Our self-reliance is the issue. Our idols are the issue. But if you read far enough in the Old Testament or the New Testament, you're going to find the word but. All the world was sinful. God wanted to blot them out. But Noah. The people of Noah's generation said, we're going to come together. We're not going to follow God's commandments. We're going to sin and we're going to create a tower. We're going to do the opposite of what God tells us to do. But Abraham. And God said, out of Abraham, out of the seed, out of the lineage, the family lineage of Abraham will come one that will save us all from our sins. 
It was the Messiah that, we, that they were waiting for, that they were told about, and that we will celebrate the empty tomb here in a couple of weeks. And in the words of Paul, he says, I do the things I don't want to do. I use technology. This is me speaking. I use technology as an idol. I, wretched man that I am, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? And the next line in that verse, he says, But thanks be to God for Jesus. But thanks be to God for Jesus. The one who was and is righteous. The one who did live a perfect life. The one who you put your faith and trust in what Christ did brings eternal life. And I can say, yes, I messed up today. But thanks be to God for Jesus. God knows that we are sinners. But Jesus lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He didn't have any idols. He followed God's commandments, his heavenly father, perfectly. He walked with God perfectly. He was a perfect sacrifice for our sins on the cross. And he conquered the grave three days later. So that you and I as sinners can put our faith in that and not ourselves. So I'm going to pray. Um, and then what I would like to do is I want to go over the Passover meal and talk about some of the elements in relation to the Lord's Supper as we are about to partake of that. So I want to pray for that first. Lord, thank you that even though we are sinners, even though that we try to create our own Tower of Babel, that Lord, your promises and your covenant, the New Testament, is true and trustworthy. That Lord, we are prone to stray and to wonder that we have sinful hearts. We are no different than the time of Noah. Son Jesus. Because you don't see them, you see your Son. And it was a new covenant, the New Testament, the gospel. And Jesus says, Hey, do this in remembrance of me. So, Lord, I pray today, if anyone here, including myself, if we have done anything to create an idol, that we have not loved you and followed your commandments. And Lord, I pray that people would love you because you, your character is love, that you love us so much that you would send your only son to die for us, that you didn't blot us out in Noah's days, that you said there is a way. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that as you put this on our heart, Lord, that we would be quick to ask you for your forgiveness. And then we would ask that you would help us to follow you, to, to walk with you, 
to put you above everything. And all God's people said, amen. All right, I know we're running over. So I wanted to, um, Miss Dana for the kids had made the Passover meal, uh, the Seder meal for Passover uh, last week and the kids. So I wanted to cover, we're not going to have time to cover all of the elements, um, but I thought it was really important to talk about this. I know it's not Passover in the Jewish um, uh, religion right now. It's coming up. That's going to be April 15th through the 23rd. And actually the Seder meal itself happens the first two nights of Passover. And the relation to that was when Jesus was going to the cross, he'd come back into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, and he comes in, and right before the trial, he has a Passover meal with his disciples, right? You've probably seen the, the painting and, and sort of things, right? So he's having a Passover meal, and this table would actually be on the floor, and they would be lying uh, together, and they would be uh, taking and eating of the Seder meal together. And so I want to read a few things about the elements here in relation to uh, how it relates to Jesus and Christianity. It says, In the Seder there were several, several strong symbols of Christ. One is the shank bone of a lamb, which reminds the participants of the feast of God's salvation. During the tenth plague, God instructed the Israelites to daub their door, doorposts and lentils with blood of a spotless lamb so that the Lord would pass over. So in Exodus... Right, as the Israelites were freed from bondage, right? So one of the times that they had to put over the doorposts, the blood of the lamb, so that God would pass over that house. And so that's why it's called the Passover or the festival of freedom. And so they would use that and the blood to put over the doorpost of their house so that God would pass over. This is a symbol of salvation in Egypt, but it's also a picture of Jesus who was and is the Lamb of God, John 1, 29. His sacrifice preserves the lives of all who believe. The instructions for the original Passover specify that the Lamb's bones could not be broken. Another foreshadowing of Christ's death in John nineteen thirty three that no bone on Christ would be broken on the cross. Another symbol of Christ on the Seder plate is the matzah, the matzah, or the unleavened bread. As the Jewish people left Egypt, they were in great haste and therefore had no time to allow their bread to rise. There are some really remarkable things about the matzah bread. For example, the matzah was placed in a bag called the Eckhart which means one in Hebrew, but this one bag had three chambers. One God, three parts, Son, Holy, the Son, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One piece of matzah is placed in each chamber of the bag. The matzah placed in the first chamber is never touched, never used, never seen. The second matzah in the bag, bag is broken in half. At the beginning of the Seder, half of the broken matzah is placed back into the Eckhart, and the other half, called the Ephacomen, is placed in a linen cloth 
right here. We got the linen cloth. But then the third matzah in the bag is used to eat the elements of the Seder plates. The meaning of the Seder ritual of the matzah is understood with clues from the New Testament. The Trinity is pictured in the matzah. The first matzah that remains in the bag throughout the Seder represents the Father, who no man sees. The third matzah represents the Holy Spirit, who dwells within us. And the second matzah, the broken one, represents the Son. The reason the middle matzah is broken is to picture the body of Christ that was broken for you and for me. The half put back in the ekar represents Jesus' divine nature. The other half, wrapped in a linen cloth and separated from the ekar, representing Jesus' humanity as he remained on earth. We're getting close. The linen cloth that wraps half of the second pizza matzah represents Jesus' burial cloth. Also, the matzah must be prepared in a certain way. If you see, you see the little holes and the stripes. It must be unleavened bread. Leaven is often equated with sin in the scripture. So if it isn't leaven, there is no sin. And Jesus, of course, is sinless. Second, the matzah must be striped. Jesus' stripes, his wounds, are what heals us spiritually, Isaiah 53.5. And third, the matzah must be pierced. Jesus was nailed to the cross, Psalm 22.16. There are also four cups of wine. I only had three, sorry. That's actually grape juice. During the, during the Seder. Each of these glasses of wine has a name. The first glass is the cup of, sal, cup of sanctification. The second is the cup of judgment. And the third is the cup of redemption. And the fourth is the cup of praise. And at the Last Supper, Jesus, he took the first cup and promised his disciples that the next time he drank the fruit of the wine with them would be in the kingdom. Luke twenty two seventeen. Later in the Seder, Jesus took the third cup, and this is a what we are about to partake of. Jesus says, drink this in remembrance of me, eat this in remembrance of me. He says, the cup of redemption, and use that cup as a symbol of the new covenant in his blood, Luke 22. Thus, Jesus fulfilled the Passover, symbolized, symbolized symbolism, and infused the whole feast with a new meaning, and that Jesus today is the Passover. That when Jesus sees you as a follower of his son, his blood, his blood, Jesus, God just passes over. He just passes over. So what we're going to do at this, uh, at this time is what I would like for you to do. I'm going to have Bob come up. And we're going to each hold a piece of the unleavened bread. So I have everybody come up and just break off a little piece. And then take a cup of juice with you. And then I'm going to read uh, Luke. And then we'll partake of it together. If you guys would just come on up.